0: Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. We are in Romans chapter 5. You'll find that on page 1119 in your pew Bible. It is hard to believe it's been since the end of November that we've been here in our study of this wonderful book, arguably the greatest letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. You'll find it again on page 1119. We arrive tonight at chapter 5, which begins a section of the letter that I uh, think is something that goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. It's probably the most well-known section of Romans and the most well-loved section of Romans. This section takes us from chapter 5 to chapter 8, and we can see that Paul is clearly taking us down a new road a new road, one that can be called a treasure trove of promises and blessings that flow from the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is what the subject is from chapter three, verse 21 through the end of chapter four. He's been dealing only with the subject of justification by faith alone. I remind you of what I said in our last study and I'll repeat it here tonight because I found it very helpful then. What Sinclair Ferguson said in speaking about this new section, as Paul transitions from chapter 4 to chapter 5, he compared it to some other very familiar images, and this is what he said. He asked, "'What do Professor Diggory Kirk's wardrobe from Narnia, the looking glass from Alice in Wonderland, and Romans 5.1 all have in common?' The answer is that each one opens to a world of unimaginable riches and amazing experiences, a wonderland in which grace seems to become stronger, in which Jesus seems to become greater, and in which the Christian life seems to become more triumphant. Which one of these three is the odd one out? And he says, of course, it is Romans 5.1, because the world you enter through that door is the only one that is real. It's the only one that's real. It's the only one that's true. The real world of unimaginable riches is what we will begin to examine tonight in these most important chapters in all of the Bible as we seek to understand the riches of His grace to us in Jesus Christ. And so for context, we'll read the first 11 verses. They are sort of a a section in and of itself and then we'll pray for God's blessing. Please stand as we read Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. This, of course, is God's most holy word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. All flesh is as the grass. All of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers, they fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we simply pray tonight that you would bless your holy word to our hearts, to our minds, that by the Spirit you would take and press these truths to us, that we might know as we leave this place that indeed we are among those who are now at peace with God. Grant us this, we pray, according to your will, and we ask it with great hope and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. On August 16th, 1945, President Harry S. Truman issued a proclamation and called for the day of prayer as hostilities with Japan ended with their unconditional surrender some three months after victory was gained in Europe. This was a proclamation of peace that the world was anxious to hear as World War II had finally come to an end. This great war did not begin in Poland, nor did it begin in Pearl Harbor, but it actually began, as you know, historically in 1937, when Japan openly attacked and opened hostilities with China. This is part of what he said. The cruel war of aggression with Japan started eight years ago to spread the forces of evil over the Pacific and has resulted in her total defeat. This is the end of the grandiose schemes of the dictators to enslave the peoples of the world, to destroy their civilization and institute a new era of darkness and degradation. This day is a new beginning in the history of freedom on this earth. Our global victory has come from the courage and stamina and spirit of free men and women united in determination to fight. It has come from the massive strength of arms and materials created by peace-loving peoples who knew that unless they won, decency in the world would end. It has come from millions of peaceful citizens all over the world, turned soldiers almost overnight, who showed a ruthless enemy that they were not afraid to fight and to die, and that they knew how to win. It has come with the help of God." who was with us in the early days of adversity and disaster, and who has now brought us to this glorious day of triumph. Let us then give thanks to him, and remember that we have now dedicated ourselves to follow in his ways to a lasting and just peace and to a better world. Now therefore, I, Harry S. Truman, President of the United States of America, do hereby appoint Sunday, August 19th, 1945, to be a day of prayer. I call upon the people of the United States of all faiths to unite in offering their thanks to God for the victory we have won, and in praying that he will support and guide us into the paths of peace. That he will support and guide us into the paths of peace. I suspect that in our congregation, there may be some who actually remember this day of prayer and perhaps even participated in it as they prayed and gave thanks to God for the peace which finally came. That is surely what people wanted because they were weary of war and hostilities between nations. And so the people of the world welcome those words of peace. But long, long before President Truman spoke those words of peace, there was another voice that was crying out about a different kind of peace, a greater and more important peace that affects every human being that has ever lived. In fact, it is a cry that has been heard from the very beginning of time and from creation. Peace with God. Peace with God. What does that mean? How do we even get here in Paul's letter Even more so, how did Paul begin and why did Paul begin this chapter the way he does? Let's remember where we've been. Paul states in Romans that his great purpose in writing this letter was to remind his readers that he, as an apostle, was set apart for the gospel of God, or the good news of God, which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He states his purpose right up front. He then goes on in Romans 1, 16 and 17, really the focus and probably the overall theme of the letter to say that he is not ashamed of that gospel and good news because it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Beginning in chapter one, verse 18 through chapter three, verse 20, he delivers the horrible verdict of God on all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike. There is no distinction for all are under sin, he says, and every mouth is stopped before his judgment seat so that the whole world is accountable to God. And so we read in those chapters or those verses that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But then beginning in chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter uh, or for till verse 31, there's another revelation that is equally being manifested in the world. Not only the revelation of his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, but there's a revelation or a manifestation of the righteousness of God, which the law and the prophets bore witness to a righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Man's great problem of not being able to stand before a holy God was now solved not by man's obedience to the law, but by God who declares sinners to be righteous before him because of the righteousness that is found only in Jesus Christ. This is so, Paul says, it is so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." And then beginning in chapter 4, verses 1 through 25, to prove his point, Paul uses the illustration of Abraham. He was the father of all the faithful. It makes sense. And he says that Abraham was justified not by the works of the law, but rather by faith. For here he says what the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. And making his case throughout the chapter, he ends that chapter with these words, which are just prior to the words we're studying tonight. It was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It was or it will be counted to us as well who believe in him, who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so we begin. That's how he got to where he is, because those words that was accounted to him was not written only for Abraham, but for us as well. All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who trust him alone by faith. Paul has then something to say to all who fall into that category. And he begins this way. Therefore, because of everything I've written, it's one of the most important words we've said so often in your Bibles Therefore, because of everything that precedes it, all of those who are justified by faith now presently have peace with God. That's what we're gonna look at tonight in a beginning way and build upon that in the weeks to come. But before we do so, I do wanna give you some insight into how I'm approaching the study of these chapters, five through eight. There are various approaches that you can take, two primarily. And one is that you see these verses and these chapters as describing something that is the fruit of our justification. There are many commentators who see chapters five through eight as a description of the consequences or fruit of our justification. Things that flow out of this great truth. What do we enjoy because of what what we enjoy because of what God has done for us in Christ? And I don't disagree with that approach. In fact, I think it's a helpful one. And in fact, in the verses we've just read, it's pretty clear that Paul is talking about the consequences. What become ours if we are truly among those who are justified by faith? And so there's good reason to see it this way. However, I tend to agree more with commentators who see that Paul is really in these chapters speaking about something far more important with respect to the individual believer and their confidence and assurance in what God has done in Jesus Christ. And so I do take these chapters uh, as Paul sort of setting before the believer that they can have every confidence and assurance that if we are justified by faith, that this salvation then is ours and it is secure. And so the security of the believer, I see as the overarching theme Of these four chapters, and I hope to be able to highlight that as we study these chapters together. I think we see it right from the first verse as he talks about those who having already been justified, have, possess, live in the moment at peace with God. And we'll talk about why that speaks to our security as we go through our study tonight. But certainly as you get through the next two and three chapters, you get to chapter eight. What is that chapter all about? As it brings all of this to an end, except to remind us that this salvation is truly ours, and there is nothing and no one who can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we'll talk about it probably in in both ways, the consequences, the fruit of justification, but my emphasis throughout will be upon the security that you and I as believers tonight can have In this salvation, which God himself has accomplished through his son. And so for the sake of time tonight, we're just going to look at this one verse, just one verse, this verse one of chapter five. And it divides very easily, as you can see, into three statements. The first is this, having been justified by faith, or as the ESV says, since we have been justified by faith. Now, the first thing, of course, to note is the tense that Paul uses. It is in the past tense. It is an act that is finished and complete. It recalls to our minds the words of Jesus, which very much are to be read this way. When on the cross, as he bore the wrath of God for sinners like you and me, for his people, as he bore that wrath, as he experienced the judgment of God, Remember those words, one word in the Greek, three in the English, it is finished. The work that he came to do, John 17, the work the Father gave him to do, is now finished. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing at all for us to do that remains. It is all by Jesus on the cross before his Father, a work that is complete, And so Paul speaks that way as he speaks about those who having already been justified by faith. To be justified, as we've noted in our study, means simply to be found right before God, to be found right in a right position before God to be able to stand before him in his holy presence. That's what justification deals with. How can a sinner stand before God? It is our greatest need. We've said that all throughout our study. Man's greatest need, men and women and children, is one. It's just one need. And that is to consider the judgment of God on the day of judgment and how it is that we, you and I, will be able to stand before him. The answer to that question is justification by faith alone. And what Paul says is that his verdict is that we who believe in Jesus are, in fact, justified. It is a one-time act, a forever and permanent verdict. We don't go back and forth between being justified, able to stand before God one day, not justified, not able to stand before God on another day. It is the one and forever permanent verdict of God to all, as Paul has said throughout these chapters, who, like Abraham, believe God, trust him by faith. Tonight, as you sit here, it is your greatest need as well. With the authority of God and the scriptures, I can say without equivocation, it is yours and mine, our greatest need as we sit here tonight. It's not where you're going to have your next job, where you're going to get your food, where you're going to get your next whatever. It's not the worries that fill your mind now with regard to the coming week. It's none of those things. The only and greatest need you and I have tonight is whether or not we are able to stand before God on the day of judgment. And so what I would encourage you as you think about these things, that you think about that most important question. Paul says we are justified, of course, by faith, like Abraham was, and like all who are the faithful. We believe God. We take him at his word. We believe his promises. That was the whole argument in chapter 4, a very important chapter, as Paul went through the whole life of Abraham and showed what it means to believe, what it means to have faith. And we talked about those things before. But this faith, our uh, confession says, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein and acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal act, the key focus of saving faith, are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of a covenant of grace. This is what it means to believe God, to take him at his word, to be justified, made right before God by faith alone. It leads the writer Jude at the end of his very brief letter to say these words, which are the highlight of his letter as we remember now to him, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy." You see, that's the language of justification by faith alone. Having been justified, he will present us before the presence of God with great joy and blameless, not because we are in and of ourselves, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For he goes on to say to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Tonight, as you sit here and as we begin this study of Romans 5, and this will be the theme throughout our study, you cannot exist outside of these chapters. You cannot just look at them as verses on a page chapters in the Bible that you have no connection to, that I have no connection to. We must see ourselves as intimately connected to these verses, and it's no less true of these. this verse tonight. It must be true of you and I, having believed and trusted, having been justified by faith, Paul says. The second part of this, of course, is the focus of Uh, The hymns that we've chosen and so many other things we're saying tonight. If it is true that we have been justified by faith, by simply believing God and all that he has promised in Christ, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. What an amazing declaration. You understand the background of this, then you understand how amazing it is. Because this statement, we have peace with God presupposes something that is true and very important for us to understand. It, It presupposes, it assumes that man by nature is at enmity with God. He exists with God, not in a neutral sort of relationship, but a relationship that is antagonistic, full of hate disobedience and all the accompanying things as we read even from Titus as we began the service this morning. It presupposes a relationship of enmity, of hatred of God. That's really what Romans 1 established, isn't it? And then through Romans 3, so that everyone is left covering their mouths and without excuse. The indictment of God, the verdict of God is that all men And women and children by nature exist before God in relationship to God in enmity as enemies of God. Ephesians 2, we can just cite a few and you know them well. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. See how he describes us by nature, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of all mankind. To be a child of wrath means to be a child who has hanging over him, if you will, the full measure of God's wrath against us for our sins. That is the picture of humanity apart from Jesus Christ. Psalm 7 tells us God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day Another translation rightly says, who is angry with the wicked every single day, because man by nature is at enmity, hostility with God. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword and has bent and revealed his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And then Paul writing, as we read earlier in Colossians 1, and you who were once alienated and hostile in your minds toward God, doing evil deeds. By nature, mankind is alienated and hostile towards God. He is our enemy, and we hate him because of his holiness. Paul says that peace has now come in that relationship to all of those who have been justified by faith alone. The word peace is, of course, related to the great Hebrew word shalom that we read and know so much about in our studies over the whole time that we've been here. We talk about this word shalom. It's not merely the cessation or the ending of hostilities. That, That is one aspect of it, but it's much more than that. Shalom is a holistic, one writer says, concept. It's a condition in which people enjoy complete and permanent well-being. So imagine we're going from a place where we are literally enemies hostile to God, haters of God, to a place, because of what God has done, to a place where we are experiencing complete and permanent well-being. That's what peace with God means. One writer says this, praise the Lord that his wrath no longer burns hotly against those who are justified by faith in Jesus. As Dr. R.C. Sproul also says in the gospel of God, his brief commentary on Romans, when God declares peace, when he declares that we are just, the war is over. The war is over and it is over forever. To be sure, believers may incur his displeasure. They may cause him, that may cause him to respond with chastisement, fatherly discipline. But never again does God lift up the sword against his children. Those of us who were and part of our ongoing study, and you're always invited to come either by Zoom or in person on Wednesdays, As we continue to sort of plot our way through the book of Ezekiel, we'll remember this past week that we studied in chapter 21 what some have called, and I think there's good reason for this, Ezekiel's song of the sword. The whole chapter deals with God through Ezekiel telling his people that he is taking up and sharpening the sword, shining the sword to be used in the discipline and destruction of his people of old for their willful and ongoing rebellion against him. This is probably where that idea comes from. In these verses, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, say a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. In that study, we talked about how Ezekiel, so often called to be an actor in this drama of God's judgment against his people, probably stood there with a sword, polished and sharpened and waved it back and forth so the sun would have shone on that metal of that sword and the people would have understood what Ezekiel, what the Lord through him was saying. So the sword, he goes on to say, is given to be polished, that it may be grasped in the hand. It is sharpened and polished to be given into the hand of the slayer. It's a picture of God's judgment against his own people who had rebelled against him and their ongoing rebellion, their willful rebellion against the Lord. God was now coming in judgment. Peace means the end of that hostility of God's coming against us in judgment having satisfied his wrath in his own son on the cross. Now there is an important note to note about what the Bible teaches about peace. The scriptures do speak about two primary kinds of peace. This peace which is forever, it is eternal, etc. and the peace of God which we read in places like Philippians, which we'll mention later. But another writer says about these two things, the most tremendous peace that anyone can experience is the peace with God that occurs whenever someone is reconciled to Him through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the purpose for which Christ came into the world, that God reconciling the world to Himself would no longer count their trespasses against them. Once enemies of God because of our sin, sinners now enjoy peace with God by and through the blood of the cross of Christ. This objective peace with God enables us to experience more and more the subjective and inner peace, the peace of God before him. The one necessarily leads to the other and you can't have the one, the peace of God, without first knowing and possessing the peace with God. Finally, we see Paul add really what is the heart of the whole letter that all of this happens through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's how it all works it's how it all comes to be. Paul writing to Timothy, we've studied this verse already in 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that everyone who is in Christ is a new creation, a new creature. The oldest passed away, behold, the new is come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, you and I are ambassadors as those justified, By faith alone, possessing this peace with God, we are now ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It all happens. It all takes place. And the rest of our study will focus on this more. We're just looking at it briefly tonight. It is all through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is all through what God has done through his son. None of it happens. The end of the world, the end of hostilities. None of that happens on our part. We can't make that happen. We can't simply drop our arms and say, one day wake up apart from God's grace and say, you know, I'm just not going to hate God anymore. Because when we are in sin, when we are under sin, as Paul says in Romans, we are slaves to sin and we cannot change that. The only one who changes it, the relationship and the hostilities to be over is God. He takes the initiative, he takes the step that is necessary and it comes, Paul says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have this wonderful hymn, before the throne of God above, when Satan tempts me to despair, And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all of my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. That's justification by faith alone, and it's all through Jesus Christ. As we close, three things just for us to remember. Very briefly, we're going to build on this. We're just making a beginning in this chapter. We'll go as slowly or as quickly as we need to go. But God, I trust, will bless all that we study for our growth and for His glory. The first is this, peace with God. And you've heard this, cannot, cannot be earned. It cannot be earned. It cannot be earned. There is nothing the sinner does to contribute to this peace with God. It is the sovereign work of God in the lives of his people and according to his will. We'll sing this hymn as we close. Horatius Bonar, one of the great hymn writers of our faith, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Have you come to know this peace with God by his mercy alone? Can you say tonight as you sit here and you hear these words which the Lord himself has given to us in this one single and yet amazing verse, can you say now, I am right now and forever at peace with God. Apart from this true and permanent peace, there can never be an enjoyment of all that is found in Christ. You heard this morning of the riches that are ours in Christ, the treasures that are ours in Christ. We have no access to those treasures unless we can say without a shadow of a doubt and because of God's grace, I am right now at peace with God. I am at peace with God. Secondly, peace with God cannot ever be lost. That's why I think these chapters are all about security. It can't ever be lost. So we ought not to confuse the peace with God with the peace of God. Peace with God is a fact for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. All who having been justified by faith have, possess now and forever peace with God. It can never be lost or taken away. But the peace of God, Philippians 4, do not be anxious for anything but... In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Even in the very context in which Paul writes, there's an indication that the peace of God can come and go. As we look at the trials of life, the fears we face, the hardships that all of us face, we all can testify that there are times where we are lacking the peace of God. And so we go to Philippians 4 and we go to other places and we see what is the remedy? Well, prayer is the remedy. Not being anxious is the remedy. Letting our minds fix themselves on what is ours in Christ and the promises of God is the remedy. And God often then does give us the peace of God, which guards our hearts and minds forever. That will come and go, and I pray you enjoy more and more as you grow in grace the peace of God. But know this, if you are His and justified by faith believing in God and his promises, you will never again be at war with God, nor will he ever be at war with you. You will never lose this peace with God. And then finally, think of the terms of peace. As you go back to World War II and and several of the sort of meetings that were held, the treaties that were written up. You look at the Paris Peace Treaties and, and the Potsdam Declaration. You look at all of those historical events after World War II and all the other agreements that followed. You're overwhelmed by the amount of agreements that were made and needed to be enforced. Uh, the Axis powers had to sort of pay. They had restitution to make. They had all kinds of things. Uh, whole sort of countries were divided differently. It was, it was a, uh, an involved, overwhelming thing. You know the terms of this peace are fairly simple, fairly straightforward. The terms of peace, of course, on God's side is to accomplish what only He could through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And by pouring out His wrath upon His Son on the cross, He fulfilled the terms of this peace accord on our behalf, something we could never do. And because of what Jesus has done, the war is over. We have peace with God. God has done it all. There's nothing for us to do. Do you know, Christian tonight, when you, when you and I disobey God, when you and I decide we're going to walk in a particular path of sin, do you know what we're doing? We're taking up arms again. We're fighting against the God who has so loved us. Now, God disciplines his own. He brings discipline and chastisement to those who choose to walk in paths of rebellion like the old man. But think about sin that way. Think about sin as being a time in our lives where we're going to say to God who has done so much for us in his son... You know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to take up arms again against you. And I'm going to live the way I used to live. You see, that's what sin is. And it violates all the terms of peace that God himself has put into place. So what are the terms of peace on our behalf? Let me suggest these. Thankfulness, allegiance, and service, and love to Jesus Christ. Those are the terms of peace. We're not our own anymore. We've been bought with a price And so we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for him who bought us by his own blood. So those are the terms of peace, thankfulness, allegiance to him, service, faithful service, and love to Christ. Isaac Watts, in his great hymns that he wrote, put it this way. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes in tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I can do. And then the hymn that we sang this morning also, Isaac Watts, were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing and so divine demands my soul, my life, and my all. I pray that God would help us each to live out these terms of peace as we live in this peace that we now have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful tonight. If you enable us by your Spirit to say, without a shadow of a doubt, that we sit here before your presence and we are at peace with you. And that is a great mercy, a great blessing that you have given to us. We can enter into this week with hope and confidence that you will be with us and never against us. We can be confident of your presence, of your power, of all that we have need of, and so we give you thanks. But we pray that if there be any here tonight who cannot say, without a shadow of a doubt that they are at peace with you, that you would so work that by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the work of your spirit, you would bring them to that understanding, that together we might rejoice in the peace that is ours now with you through Jesus Christ, our savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen.